and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening. We're so incredibly grateful. So please do let us know what you think, what you'd like more of, and any debut authors you'd like to hear from. Also, it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve. Today, we're chatting to Lizzie Barber, author of My Name is Anna. We discuss the art of writing a why done it rather than a who done it communicating themes via your character's traits and how entering a competition changed Liz's life overnight. Dirt has a way of falling through the smallest of cracks. You may think there is nothing there, but it will always be found eventually. I raise my fingers through the cooling bathwater and check my nails, looking for the invisible fragments of dust I always fail to spot, but Mama hones in on with such definite aim. In my head... I rehearse the words I have whispered to myself so many times I see them written across my lids when I close my eyes. Today is my 18th birthday, and, for the first time, I am lying to my mother. I sought out the comfort of the bath, hoping it would ease the tension. But even here I cannot shut out the remnants of my fractured sleep. The ghost of my dream floats on the water's clouded surface, the dream that has come before, that has grown more frequent as my anxiety has mounted, its creeping fingers reaching for me in the strangest of moments. A dream that feels so real, I swear it isn't a dream at all. It taps me on the shoulder now, revolving and gyrating just out of reach. A whirl of bright colours. Laughter. Music. A face, the features blurred. And a voice, calling. I know it's me they're seeking, but something isn't right. The name they're calling isn't mine. I pull the plug and the water begins to swirl around me, milky with the residue of peach-scented foam. My voice penetrates the silence of the bathroom, although I'm not sure if it's real or in my mind. No, my name is Anna. The bathwater drains, but the dream lingers. Hi Lizzie and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, for our readers who have yet to read your debut novel, my name is Anna, can you tell us what it's about? Yes, so it is a psychological thriller. Uh, it's a dual narrative following the stories of uh, Anna and Rosie. Anna lives... Rosie. Everybody everybody surrounding me is called Rosie for some reason. Surrounding this book, it's very weird. It's Rosie a great name. That's <laughs> obviously why. My mum just got a dog and called it Rosie. You know what? <laughs> everybody calls the dog Rosie. I say Alex has got a dog called Rosie. Yeah, I say my name's Rosie and they say that's what my dog is called. So I I don't, I'm trying not to take anything from that. No. But. Um anyway, but so, yes. Yes. <laughs> sorry, this is much more interesting. So it's a dual narrative uh, about a girl called Anna who lives in Florida. She's eighteen. She lives with a very strict religious um mother and a girl called Rosie who lives in London and um Rosie has always lived in the shadow of a missing sister who disappeared from a park when she was a baby. And uh, Anna uh, is um, never been to this very famous theme park in America called Astroland. And on her 18th birthday, she defies her mother's wishes and goes to this park and has a revelation that makes her think that she's not who she thinks she is. So you can kind of see how mm. the 
stories converge together. So I always say that it, it's not a it's not a who done it, it's a why done it. Mm-hmm. So um, it's very clear from the outset, and I'm not doing any spoilers by saying that um, there is a connection between Anna and Rosie. It's about how they come together. Oh, I love it. Such a great, great idea for a book. Thank you. And um and from from like page one, it's utterly gripping. Thank it's you. utterly gripping. I love it. There's um there's such an art to revealing enough about characters and a possible plot to keep readers engaged, but not too much that there's nowhere left for your story to go. Yeah. So I mean yeah, so I how did you decide what information was gonna be important to reveal as the book progressed? I think, like you say, it was very difficult because uh it was fairly obvious that they are sisters. And so I think a lot of it for me is to do with dramatic irony of the fact that you're actually giving the reader a lot of information, but it's about watching those reveals come out with the characters themselves. Um, Actually, a lot of it was through the editorial process, uh, specifically in the reveals for Anna. We kind of plotted those very carefully when we were going through the editing process about what information at what time was being revealed for Anna. And actually, I suppose there's a kind of relief with Rosie as to when uh, Rosie is giving stuff away that enlightens the Anna mm. chapters. So there's kind of quite a difficult balance between the two of them. It's quite a lot to manage in in like, in like terms of just being in your head. Yeah. When you say you plotted it, I'm also always so interested in plotting. When you say you plotted it quite carefully, was this... Like, you know, did you have it written out and you knew where you were writing to with each scene or... Well, funny, I never thought that I would be somebody who did that because I've kind of written things in the past um, which have been much more kind of, let's just see how this all goes. But actually, for some reason, I found it much easier with this book to almost have a kind of chapter by chapter, not a full... Of not even a paragraph, but maybe a sentence of what happens in each book, in each chapter, sorry. But then actually... Um, Again, in the editing phase, there was some heavy-duty planning. I'm also terrible <laughs> with dates and timing. It's anything to do with numbers. I'm terrible at So I got to a stage where I was literally I had like an Excel spreadsheet with dates attached to it. And because a lot of it's set in the past as well, I was kind of working out 15 years ago and what the date would be and when different things were happening. And that's probably my worst skill, trying to do anything <laughs> like that to do with dates. So it was a real kind of challenge for me. But it was really heavily planned out in Excel after having almost kind of free-written a draft with very light planning. And the dual narrative works so well, particularly in this bit, because like you say, you've got Anna who's, well, both of them are searching Mm. for answers. And I think when you've got one person doing that, there's a lot of kind of, and then she sat on her bed and just stared into space and thought, why? But because we've got, we've got both sides of the story. So we've got what Anna's wondering, we're getting from Rosie. Was that always, did you start with the dual narrative and you were very set on having both their voices at the beginning or did that come as you were as you sort of wrote and thought I, I want to be able to give more information this book has lived in my head much longer than it's lived on paper and the um I mean I've got a really really I almost put it with me and I completely forgot I've got a really really early just kind of you know when you just plonk something down on the page first image of Anna walking down the stairs on her birthday and um, that's pretty much stayed the same and this was maybe kind of three three, four years ago. Um, So it started with Anna and this idea of what would it be like. I think it was, I would say that the book came about when there were were lots of girls being discovered in basements. Mm. So there were the girls found by Ariel Castro, Castro, there was um, Natasha Campush, there was Elizabeth Smart who was taken, um, there was um, JC Duggard. So there were were all these Mm. cases of these girls. And I thought 
what would it be like actually if you weren't aware that you were captive so it started with Anna and then as soon as I started writing Anna I kind of got this idea of the reverse what would it be like to be the sister of somebody who'd gone missing and to have this thing that you can't influence at all that lives over your whole life and that's where Rosie came (coughs) in as well and actually Rosie just came out as such a strong character and a strong voice for me that it ended up being this very natural dual process between the two of them and I was really interested in a lot of um, mirroring between the two of them and um, kind of nature versus nurture in terms of their characteristics and their personalities cool such a great such a great great topic mm. and you mentioned the kind of like the, the the cases that you were influenced by and kind of obviously it will remind many UK people about sort of Madeleine McCann and you know we've seen the effects on the family from like that kind of perspective yeah. and I wondered like what, was that something that you were were you drawing on these kind of stories like that like obviously you've said that they were kind of sparked from that it was certainly in the back of my mind I mean I wouldn't want to sort of trivialise anything that's happened with the McCanns uh, I think that certainly my the, the kind of biggest thing I drew from the McCanns was actually a lot of sympathy for them being sort of normal you know kind of British middle class people and having a lot of hatred thrown their way for the way that they behaved and acted anything that they did and I think that that was one of the things I drew with Rosie's family was that it's just kind of bloody mindedness and kind of daily mail commentary Mm. sections of people having their own theories and having their own judgments on the parents and that was something that I really drew in Mm. Um, there was one thing I talked about with um, a very kind of trivial mention of um, them writing people writing graffiti on the walls of Mm. the the front door of the house uh, I'm not sure if that actually happened to the McCann's but it's the kind of that public sentiment that I really drew from it rather than kind of imagining what it would be like to be around McCann's yeah, sister because yeah, yeah. I didn't I really didn't want to go into that and what not. they mm. they yeah. went through yeah that line really resonated with me and oh. and 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 that I the kind of the aftermath I think mm-hmm. you know because and and where we are because it's set it's 15 years after yeah uh Anna go Anna the the girl goes missing Mm. and um and so and that idea that you're looking at you know you're actually almost sort of you don't ignore it but I think a lot of people would think oh how exciting to have a dramatic moment of when a child goes missing and actually it's a much more subtle uh, it's much more nuanced than that because you know and so that idea of the why done it why was that so appealing and what would your tips be for authors who who do want to write a psychological thriller that's not you know there is a lot more nuanced I think um, I think for me I think I remember I, I did a kind of a lot of write, a consistent writing course but kind of part time and one of the things that they talked about was whether you're a kind of character writer or a plot writer and I'm definitely a character writer I think that a lot of the help that I got in the editorial process was plot driving the plot forward um, so for me being able to kind of dwell on the aftermath was a lot more about the psychological workings of these two characters and that really helped with Rosie and that is where you get the aftermath I think also it's very easy to kind of drift into melodrama when you're writing in the heat of the moment whereas actually one of the um, things that I enjoyed as you say of the nuances of this 15 year later period is actually they're not spending every waking moment in this kind of heightened sense of reality of kind of 
oh, oh woe is me but this is a horrendous thing that's happened to us and we're living in this kind of heightened drama every single day and I think that that is actually it's a bit more subtle but it also helps you to be a, to be a bit more grounded and be a bit more realistic and have those peaks and troughs in the narrative yeah because otherwise you're sort of writing that you know like race against time yeah. to, to solve it which is, and often, to... which is often what a whodunit is isn't yeah. it yeah so exactly and also it doesn't really offer what's so interesting and so sort of juicy about this you know there's so many you know you, you want to understand the motivations of the characters and the effects that it would have like rather than it just being the events mm. it's a lot more interesting to kind of think about the motivations behind why someone yeah. would take a child and like like kind of you know little like just it's, mm. it's more of an interesting reading experience like to yeah. have that kind of re- like explained mm. how did you um did you how did you approach your research like did you did you was it purely imagination or did you go um a lot of stuff was sort of latent i was i was have been really interested in these abduction yeah. cases um the kind of religious side of things i'm obsessed with of extreme religion and extreme um i wouldn't go so far as to say cults but cults um, super interesting yeah, yeah yeah like a little bit too obsessed with cults mm. um so a lot of that was stuff that i kind of had latent knowledge of that i kind of drew out of um i was actually saying to um, one of the penguin team the other day that um warren jeffs who is the kind of church of the latter-day saints leader put in a decree whilst he was in prison about couples having sex he kind of um, within the latter-day saints not just everybody um, <laughs> but saying saying that the couples in his church weren't, weren't allowed to have sex with each other and that was something I kind of picked out I was like thank you Warren Jeffs yeah, I will yeah. take that uh, so that sort of information I did kind of cherry pick from research I had um, I um, had been to Florida a lot in my childhood I went to Disney quite a lot with my family who are quite obsessed with Disney um, but I think that actually for plotting Florida as a location, I actually did a lot of uh, a lot of research just through Google and through kind of Google searching. And I also used um, Google Maps quite a lot. So I actually did kind of Google Street View. And yeah. there's a there's a journey that Anna takes on a bike that I did through Google Street View, where I was kind of looking left and right and seeing what was on either side so to cool. get a sense. Yeah, it was really useful. Yeah. I don't I um don't really I I've kind of got plotted out that. There is a random, you know, when you have your Google Maps and you open them up, if I ever go to that part of the world, I'm going to see like, oh, there's Anna's house. (laughs) There's where she went to school. It's not necessarily real places, but I've kind of plotted them in my head Mm. just to make it feel more realistic. Because with Rosie, it's set in Islington largely, which is where I live. Um, So I drew a lot of that from my own knowledge. And actually, she goes to Chesterfield, which is where my in-laws live. So there's a kind of statue of a a man outside Chesterfield Station who does look like he's putting the finger. And I was just (laughs) like, I've got to put that in, (laughs) just as a little nod to the family. So, So I think it's a mixture of kind of... Stuff I'm interested in, stuff I've had to to research or kind of use technology for, and then my own kind of physical background. Yeah, and one of <coughs> it's a bit, it's almost a bit of a trope now to talk about show don't tell, but it is very important. Mm. And that was one of the things that I just thought you did so brilliantly. And when you were talking about using Google Maps and stuff, there's a scene where Anna and her mother are walking to church. Her mother's decided that they have to walk to yeah. church now, and the heat. Of, of you know the sun is beating down on their back and there's yeah. such a sort of sense of that punitive kind of almost self-flagellating we have to walk in the midday sun to the church and it and it really adds it really heightens that sense of kind of that real devotion and that sort of piousness and I wondered if you could just talk us through a little bit about how you conveyed Anna and Rosie's personalities through some of the behaviours and actions that, yeah that 
do you write for them? Because some of the scenes are just the party scene where Rosie goes to a party. Are just they're just very very great examples of shared intel so I just wanted to see if you could talk a bit about those I'm glad that you picked up on the party scene because that was one scene I really fought for in the editorial process because it was a real um, fine line between being too YA and and for me it being a really important scene in terms of Rosie's growth mm. and and her journey. Um, I, show you, don't tell. Sorry. Can you just tell us a little bit, just without giving too much yeah. away, what happens in that scene? So Rosie goes to a very kind of typical teenage. She's sixteen, so she goes to a very typical teenage party, uh, which I draw on a lot from my own experiences <laughs> of kind of teenage house parties, uh, and. All she wants to do is feel normal. She's had this interview with her whole family uh, with the cameras on her and it's all eyes on her family. And so she just wants to go to be a normal teenager. That's all she wants to do for the whole book. And she goes to this party and she meets this boy that she quite likes and she gets very drunk very quickly. And then she goes upstairs to a spare room and... um, again kind of this could be any any teenage experience and he takes things a little too far and then she tries to stop him and he says very bluntly i want to see what it's like to fuck emily archer's sister emily archer being rosie's sister that disappeared and i think for me it was the the horror of that moment for her which really drives her search forward this this understanding that she has done everything in her power to escape who she is and she can't mm. um but show don't tell is, is really important for me so i'm pleased that you picked up on that something that was really drummed into me in all my writing courses and so for me i think a lot of it is to do with the kind of sensory that using all the senses and so certainly with Anna a lot of that was to do with like you said the heat of hot Florida getting across that sense of oppression through the heat um whereas I think Rosie is a lot more urban as a character and I think that that was one of the things I wanted to pick up in their traits I mean Anna has this bike that she travels around with which just seems so rural for me and that's how she gets from A to B everywhere is on this little bike um whereas Rosie is very much kind of she she for somebody who has been very closeted because of her situation she's very street smart um so i think that that was really important to convey her kind of urbanness anna's kind of necessarily removed from technology she her boyfriend gives her a phone at one point um but she doesn't have a, a, a i think one of the things that people might question is like why don't you just google and find out who you are but she is removed from technology so she doesn't have the computer she's not allowed to watch tv she's these aren't kind of everyday things for her so i think it was much more about creating that kind of isolation and impression for her and their house was very important for me as a kind of big isolated house in the middle of fields that that nobody really sees her mother closes all the curtains so it's this kind of um she refers to as a hermetic seal against the world so it's kind of they are really just a two in this world, Anna and Mama, um, whereas Rosie is much more surrounded by people a lot of the time. Was that something that you had to consciously decide because in order to negate that question of why doesn't she just Google it, which is something that writers 30 years ago would never have had to, had to deal with, it's a relatively new you know, thing that now we have to write we have to kind of write those caveats into our plots so yeah. that we can get over those barriers to create suspense and create tension. Did you think, right, I have to give her a situation where she can't Google? I think, I mean, it fitted very nicely with her character, but I think you're totally right. It's one thing, I'm, I'm super into horror films, and one of the things I read was that you you can't really make horror films in the same way as you used to in 
pre-technology somebody said that you know something like scream the first few minutes of scream you'd have kind of caller id or something on it so you'd be able to tell or you just you know you call the police instantly so it is important to kind of you need to there's a little bit of suspension of disbelief but you also just need to make it feel realistic as well as to why things don't happen but i think that i suppose with rosie because the technological technological is that a word? Sounds fun. Yeah, it's fine. Awesome. It's December. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that that side of things, you know, there is the Hive, which is this kind of Reddit-style um, program that I created. So Rosie's spending a lot of time with technology, and I suppose that kind of, in a way, it's acknowledging it without um, bringing it into Anna's story in a way that people think, well, it's not like she's pretending that Google doesn't exist. And she does come to Google stuff, but it's through William, her boyfriend. That is where the big reveal is, where she works out who she is. Mm. Um, But she did need to be slightly removed from it. But I think that within that sort of slightly archaic religious family, it it would feel naturalistic for her that she wouldn't just have a home computer and be able to google things on her phone and that's certainly mama's influence as well and i think it works so well because obviously you have that natural interest in extremist religion and sort of that isolationism anyway so it doesn't feel forced like it didn't actually occur to me it was only when you said you know oh people have said why didn't she just google i was like well of course she doesn't google (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly i really like the quality that you had of them both anna and her mum being really obsessively clean Mm -hmm. and i think that that's like another example of a characteristic that kind of um you know tells so much about somebody or the the way that they think just by kind of their actions yeah and was was there anything how did that detail come to you did that just kind of come (laughs) in the writing like it's those little details that make stories so rich but often it's it's unexplained where they where they come from so my mum is going to hate me saying this but she is super OCD (laughs) she did she did read an early draft and was like wait hold on um no I think that I mean I think that's where the name Lily the Lilies came from for me this idea of purity and cleanliness um and I think I kind of took that as a characteristic of it is a kind of way of getting getting rid of the outside world in a way and I think I just took that to an extreme form with Mama and then saw how that would play out with Anna um I think it was quite easy to kind of imagine for me to imagine those characteristics kind of second fold in Anna so things like the wiping the cutlery before they use it and um there's a scene where they go to Astraland and she is eating corn on the cob and she gets butter on her fingers um and that's fine when she's in the moment but then as soon as she thinks of her mother there's this kind of revulsion mm. of kind of fear of germs and dirt that comes in that's you that kind of imagery is is woven throughout the book in her narrative the idea of dirt um as opposed to the lily which is a symbol of purity and and especially within kind of religious purity works really nice and and at the very end again without revealing too much there's a lot of whiteness going on in in the scenes at the end and she's wearing a white night dress so again it's kind of the mother's control of her is exerted through purity and cleanliness Mm. oh it's so lovely to hear how much thought you put into (laughs) like those little details because they really make such a difference and I love the way that it was obviously it was mama's influence and Anna even says you know well William questioned it yeah and you know it it is she kind of has that sense of it is a bit weird and that is part of a wider theme of something about my situation isn't quite right and it just works so well um you won the Daily Mail crime writing yes. competition. Congratulations. <laughs> a, while, a little while ago. <coughs> my writing thinking. When did you win it? So I won it, must have been last May. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
um, obviously writing competitions are a fantastic way for people who've never really written before and have been published you know a lot of them seek out unpublished authors to get into writing I wonder if you could tell us just a bit about how you came to apply what the process was like and what you would advise anybody who's listening to this with some writing in their drawer thinking oh my goodness I could never enter a competition so I mean this the the competition was how this whole thing came about and it was just this huge kind of vroom thing of stuff happening to me so I think so I'll say that I've all, I've always written, but sort of on the side, not necessarily taking anything seriously. It actually came about, I started doing writing courses because um, my now husband, then boyfriend at the time, and my best friend both moved to the States for, well, my best friend moved permanently, my husband moved for six months, literally at the same time. And, and I was feeling a little bit stagnant and was like, well, what am I doing? And so I started doing this writing course because I had this idea for for years about this um, more of a sort of literary fiction book about my grandma's life uh, or based on my grandma's life. She lived in Israel and Egypt and came to London. So it was this kind of very exciting time in the 50s and 60s and kind of plodded through this and did maybe five years worth of this very good writing course part time um, just, you know, evening course once a week. And that really honed my writing. I would say I, I, I think that I wouldn't. But people ask, why do you do writing courses? Who teaches you how to write? But that really helped in terms of developing skill sets. What course was it? Um, it's called the Original Creative Writing Course, and it's run by somebody called, well, it, she's actually retired now, but it's run by a woman called Maggie Hammond, who's um, written a lot on creative writing and is a, is a writer herself. And um, she's had some great tutors on it as well who, who have just been kind of fundamental for me and it's very it's very small it's maybe kind of eight to ten people and there's a lot of uh, workshopping okay. um and Sounds it's just right. been yeah it's been really helpful yeah. um but then I got to the stage with the book where I was like I just I can't I don't know if you guys have had that with your own writing where you're just like I'm just so I mean writer's block is writer's block but this was just like I, I can't anymore yeah and so, and then I, because I'd had this idea of Anna's character in my head, I just kind of flung something down and I was telling my, I told my mum about it. And I think literally in the process of, of a couple of weeks or, you know, three or three or four weeks after I'd mentioned it to her that I was writing this thing, she um, called me and said, oh, there's this competition in the Daily Mail, you should enter. And I think I kind of just thought, I'd entered a couple of things before, I'd written a couple of short stories, never got anywhere with them. And I think that that's, this is a typical writer's thing where it's just like, oh, what's the point? Yeah. Um, but I did just enter it and I entered it on the last day and I couriered it because I was so scared that it wouldn't get there in time. Uh, it was a, a, I think, so I'd written one chapter and then I wrote Rosie's chapter as well, kind of in a flurry of, of activity. And I remember I kind of finished it on the midnight the night before and my husband was upstairs being like, come on, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, and sent it the next day and then totally forgot about it. And... A few weeks later, I got this call and I remember it so clearly because it was kind of, um, I work full time as well. So I was kind of Tuesday morning preparing for our kind of Tuesday morning ops meeting. And I got this call saying, hi, it's Luigi from LBA. And I was like, oh, what do you want? (laughs) Are you the plumber? And he said, do you remember you entered this competition? And I was like, "Mm, vaguely. Um, And then he called and he told me that I'd won this thing. And I literally, I remember I backed against the wall of the office and kind of slid down it <laughs> and was going are you joking and then he was just saying that so out of this competition I mean it was such an amazing 
un- unbelievable prize to have won because it was representation from Luigi himself. Um, LBA turns out to be Luigi Bonomi Associates, which okay. is Luigi's agency, um, and the contract with Penguin Random House in the advance as well. So it was, wow. it was kind of naught to 360 in one phone call, oh which was just, I mean, it's a writer's dream. Yeah. But having kind of been on this... You know, I wouldn't say I was kind of this struggling artist who'd been trying to get published in a way. There's kind of a little bit of guilt for that and that I know that a lot of writers have, you know, sent sent off submissions and spent a lot of time, you know, working and hammering on doors. And I felt suddenly like, where has this suddenly come from? But it was just this incredible opportunity that, that came to me and, and felt like, actually, when I think back to it, I've been writing for a long time and even before I was writing this book about my grandma I've just kind of always written for my own pleasure um but I think that um it was one of those things I did a lot of acting when I was younger and all through university so it was kind of like you either act or you write you don't really have time in the day to do both so I kind of very much focused on that um so I suppose it was the culmination of that this whole thing that I kind of now feel like I should have spent all that bloody time when I was acting doing this because it kind of feels much more natural to me in a way and feels like the thing I should have been doing all along. So, yeah. and, and if someone was thinking about entering, presumably your advice is go for it. Just go for it. Just enter, enter anything. I mean, I know that there is kind of, there are fees for some things. Um, I've entered the Bridport prize a few years running. We haven't got anywhere. Um, but I think that there's, I don't know. I feel like there's a sense of of judgment that you know you think like that holds people back Mm. i think you just kind of need to almost push past it and think well what's the worst that can happen and what's the best that can happen because the worst that could have happened for me entering this prize is that nothing Nothing happens nothing nobody nobody's going to call you up and say you know what you're shit (laughs) you know no there's no like reverse prize yeah Yeah. (laughs) and then they won't do it to your face you you don't know what's coming yeah yeah i'm waiting for all of that i'm sure but you know there's no reverse prize there's no like your shit prize but there is only an upside so i would just say go for it and also i think you start to learn a lot more about yourself and where you fit in you know i was entering the bridport prize which is probably a lot more maybe literary that's not really my audience or my writing style so um actually this this prize was perfect for me and um i've ended up with this amazing team surrounding me from the team at penguin random house and luigi my agent and and it's just been an absolute treat it's just been insane (laughs) it's insane you like hearing stories like this yeah Yeah. thank you (laughs) obviously it was just destiny yeah yeah i do believe that everything happens for a reason i I say this a lot and i do feel like that with this but if you don't enter you've no chance of winning it's exactly you, know, you have yeah. to at least enter your life will continue yeah. being yes. exactly the same exactly but you will have just spent a bit of money printing some and stuff and in fact out. it's so low it's in yeah. fact it's incredibly low risk yeah. in fact it's i would go as far as says it's no risk it's you, no risk you just send the thing off and if you win that's great and if you don't then you move on to something yeah else. i think I, um you know maybe along with the kind of fear of humiliation i suppose there's just the kind of there's a there's the process involved in finding out about competitions i think i remember googling a while ago i, I wish i'd i I'll try and find the details of it, but I'm, there is quite a good resource on the internet that lists all of the literary prizes, prizes mm. that are that are going on, <laughs> almost kind of diarised. Yeah, and they so are out there. To yeah, be yeah, it's worth looking at, and mm. and just I think even if it's just you know I, I've written I've written one short story. It's such a skill. It's not my skill, but you know even that as a process of kind of challenging yourself to write 
um, a short story to a to a word count is just it's just building skills as well, isn't it? And and deadlines. I think that that in itself is kind of in a writer's toolbox an important thing to learn to do. Yeah, and because well, without that, you can just flounder around not really doing anything like without a deadline. I think yeah. making a deadline is so so key yeah yeah um but also so it sounds like you know you were saying how you you kind of got to the point where you're a bit fed up with the book you were kind of like oh i just can't anymore yeah. like and i wondered um obviously so many writers decide to put things in a drawer and give them a bit of space yeah um what kind of advice would you have for people that have maybe got a project that they really care about sitting in a drawer right now you know? I, I think <laughs> enter um, competition. yeah enter competition <laughs> uh, I mean for me it was writing something totally different I mean I don't know whether this other book will ever see the light of day but I would also say um so I so I had I kind of gone back to my writing course for they did a kind of intensive weekend and I've known Maggie the, the tutor for a long time and and you know you come to the course and you because it's different people every term you kind of introduce yourself and I said to Maggie because I've been working on this book for such a long time I said you're going to kill me but I'm doing something completely different and she said to me don't stress about it sometimes writing your first book is the process to which you write Mm. your second book and so for me I have whether that book I don't do anything with it, whether I go back to it, that will have always been part of the learning process for me to be able to to write My Name is Anna. So I think it's, you know, if it's just not working for you, maybe it's just not working for Mm -hmm. you, but I don't think you can see it as a waste of your time and energy because there'll be something in that that has taught you something. Yeah, yeah. Or there'll be elements that that maybe you've thought of one story, but they add to the story that you then come up with to make it kind of a bit richer. I think it's so important for anyone listening or anyone who follows what we do at The Riff Raff to know that most authors who have their book published have written at least one entire novel before... They've, yeah. they've they started writing the one that eventually got published. The idea that someone sat down, started writing, sent it off to an agent and got published and it was like a six-month process, I think is a bit of a fallacy and a, a bit can be quite detrimental. I think it's so important just to like yeah get that message out that most people have already like written something yeah, yeah. maybe multiple know? things yeah. like we had a dude Anthony Good on before, before you and he, he this was his first book he's had published his third Third, third attempt four, third to get attempt published, to get yeah. Published. So he's yeah. got at least two other manuscripts sitting in a drawer that, as you say, may never, you might never do anything with, but as Amy says, will inform your writing. Um, we're obsessed with knowing about writers' routines, <laughs> and I was wondering, you know, if there was anything particular, especially with a book that requires a lot of tracking of times and dates and keeping information mm. um, in a very, very... Uh, clear fashion were there any routines that helped you write this book routines in terms of so customs that you would do or times of day or how many words a day you would write or anything like just about the actual process (laughs) I feel very unprocessy I think well because I work full-time and I'm generally a very busy person I think the deadline for me was amazing. I'm writing my second book at the moment. I have no deadline. So I'm just like, or I could watch the whole of American Office, which is now on Amazon. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's so good. It I've gets, never it, seen it before. It so gets it's... better after it deviates away from the British office, I think. Oh, really? Well. Yeah. Okay, so I've just started season three. Oh, it gets, it's so good. So, so I mean, like anything is a distraction for me at the moment. Whereas, well, you're pregnant as well, so you're yeah, yeah. Just sit down we and do should nothing. mention that you're, you're eight months eight pregnant, months pregnant. <laughs> whilst you're doing this podcast, promoting your book, and writing your second one. That's 
I don't like sleep. It's like, <laughs> yeah. no, I, I like being busy. I'm, I'm actually, I mean, I tried to go to a yoga class recently because I was like, that's supposed to be good for pregnant people. It stressed me out so much. Lying on the floor for five minutes at the end of the class, I was like, you are wasting my time. <laughs> um, but so I think that's having a, oh, it's, it's stressful. So I like being busy and I think having um, a deadline of getting the first draft out. So I think I heard, I heard maybe it was later than May actually when I had the competition. I finished my first draft at the end of September. Um, and I think that for me, I'm one of those people who I need, I need time pressure. I think it was one of those things I learned at university as well because I was um, doing so many plays. I had a lot of friends who just used to doss around all day and then they'd be up all night writing and filling a deadline where I always was like, well, I've got to go to rehearsal in an hour, so I need to bang this out. So for me, it was very much like, especially when I was kind of getting close to crunch time, being very disciplined about, I used to bring my laptop to work and I would write in my lunch break for an hour and then I would go home. Um, I would normally have things to do in the evening or gym or I do a lot of dance as well so I was doing things like that but kind of setting aside maybe another hour then and then I was lucky that my husband also writes um part-time as well he's a food writer and so on the weekends he hates me saying this as well I put it in um, an interview I did with the Daily Mail he was like fuck's sake um that we'd sit on our living room sofa writing next to each other that's adorable awful um but so we yeah i'm not surprised she doesn't want you to talk about it though (laughs) all the women are like oh and all the men are like Uh, okay yeah gender stereotypical of me isn't it yeah we're both nerds (laughs) but yeah so i think that that you know it was kind of like weekends was my time but certainly you know i hear writers about it's that kind of envy or kind of nervous as you hear writers kind of setting their alarm for five or six o'clock in the morning and I'm just like nope need my sleep did you have any kind of like word limits for your like if you if you know that you've only got an hour at lunchtime and an hour in the evening were you like right well I need to I need to get 500 words down a thousand words or were you just like if I'm dedicating that hour those two hours to it a day that's enough that's enough progress I think that was it I think it was just like and I've certainly found this in my second book is that you can sit there for an hour and write five words Mm. or you can and that for me is better than I've got to bang out 500 words in this time limit it's just kind of like what will come will come and some days you'll have periods where you won't write anything at all and some days you'll find you really get into the flow what's more annoying is when you're in the flow and then your hour's up and it's a really kind of jolting feeling and being like and I take a long time I I, I mean you talk about routine my routine is like procrastination routine so I'm like well I can't start writing, especially because I write in coffee shops a lot. So I'm like, can't stop writing until I've got my coffee. Then I've got to look for a plug socket. Then I've got to just check, just check my emails. I'll just check again. There's a lot of that going on for me. And, you know, I've got to sign up to the internet in case I need it. And so I do a lot of that before I start writing, which isn't so much routine as procrastination. Yeah, exactly. It's not what Usain Bolt does before a race, you know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it is completely that. Drinks a coffee, looks a plug. Writing on the tube, I tell you, it's time pressure because you have to get on, you have to get off, no internet. Oh, it's the best. Well, actually, um, I wrote the first, I think it was the first 25,000 words I wrote on the tube mm. in the mornings oh, on my phone yeah yeah but it's amazing and also because you don't think you've written that much mm. if you write it in the notes mm. and then I used to kind of email the notes to myself and I'd be like oh wasn't me yeah I've done that between Hibernisington and Oxford Circus and it's yeah. a real kind of little boost and just kind of writing things out mm. I actually wrote um I, I I have to write 
in a linear way I feel like a lot of writers don't do that but for me I think maybe it's because I I need to feel the progression or feel where the story is moving so it would be just kind of maybe like a conversation at that point I have maybe you know a couple of scenes that are key that I will have kind of drafted but it's it's more carrying it around my head Um, but apart from that it, it is all linear it's not kind of that's so interesting because like just the idea that like for a lot of writers I think the um you can get stuck on the first chapter. You can want it to get so to be so perfect, or to be such the perfect start, or the early chapters to be this defining thing that starts your story. That you can sometimes get a little bit stuck. I do, I yeah. do anyway, and I would I would spend ages just trying to get the right tone and everything with it. But I find that writing something else along the way will get will probably inform what my first scene even needs to be. You know, yeah. I'm probably trying to start it way before it needs to actually start. You know, and so I wondered if yeah. How you can start writing in a linear fashion and not get bogged down by the, not get bogged down by the little. Well, actually, like this is something I've started doing. Right, my second book that I didn't do in my first is I kind of leave myself highlighted notes on the page, um, because I just, I've got to move on. Mm. Like you said, otherwise you get stuck. So I'm, <laughs> I got my husband to read what I've written so far with the second book, and it's got these kind of highlighted with square bracket things that being like, this chapter's a bit shit, or like this doesn't seem right at all or and then I'll put kind of notes to myself in it like and, and I think I did do that with Anna or not you know should kind of, should she be doing this here yeah. or maybe refer to something about mama here and I think that's really helpful for me because it's kind of like I'm addressing it but I don't have the mental capacity at this time to deal with it mm. so I'm just going to move on and then you can you know with the um with my name is Anna, I would maybe get to a certain point and then be like, okay, well, I'm just going to go back and see what I've done and see how I can redraft it. And actually then it's kind of like if I get stuck later on, then I, I'll go back and work through it and it actually just refreshes in your mind how the story yeah. goes. Because especially if you've been writing something for a long time, you can kind of forget what, what's happened or what the process has been or little details. And so then if you're not kind of perfecting everything, it kind of gives you the ability to go back and it's it's also quite a nice way of writing without writing. <laughs> so it's kind of like... And it's also, you know, leaving the story time to develop. It's not being yeah. too rigid, you know, just knowing that that needs to be, something needs to be acknowledged at that point. Like, I yeah. write myself so many notes. Like, the majority of the time, it's like, be funnier. <laughs> yeah. This is shit. Yeah. <laughs> and that is ge- genuinely, if we went through my manuscript now, it's just be funnier, be funny. Be funny. <laughs> but like, it is like kind of, it, it, that kind of note to self, it's like a, an acknowledgement of there's something needs to happen here. And just, and like, and it's, it's, it's nice to sort of, communicate with yourself yeah I often find with writing that I'll come I'll, I'll be doing something and I will be like oh that's what I need to do now and then I read what I've written after that and I've already done it yeah it's exactly what I've done but like it's and it's kind of like you know reminding yourself of those kind of things it's like part of the process or and then you're like yeah I've already done that I've already, I'm already on the case <laughs> yeah so you mentioned that you're writing your second book yeah. whilst being pregnant and working and dancing and I feel tired <laughs> just listening to you um so can you give us a sneak peek of what it's about I can um so it is another thriller it's completely different it's not continuation um it is set in uh, florence which is a city that's very close to my heart and i spent a lot of time in and it's i'd say it's kind of talented mr ripley-esque vibe it's modern modern day well 90s but it's about a um girl sort of um you know kind of not particularly wealthy not particularly anything special girl who falls in with this very kind of 
wealthy expat set in Florence and um, it's it's not dual narrative but it's kind of dual time period so it is what happened during the summer that she spent in Florence working at a kind of very plush pensione in the hills of Florence and her now reflecting on that time and something that has happened um, oh, it sounds amazing. Done. Thank That's you. So right. good. It puts Thank me in mind of Emma Klein's The Girls a little bit. Yes, I love that. Oh, it sounds, yeah. it sounds wonderful. I can't yeah. wait to read it. Well, yeah, me too. I can't <laughs> wait to finish it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm trying. You've got kind of quite a lot on your plate at the moment. Yeah. So. yeah. yeah. Have a baby first. And yeah. Then, and then finish the book so I can read it. Yes, I will. Um, Lizzie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com.